This morning I'm going to be reading our scripture text from the 19, or the, excuse me, the 1599 Geneva Bible. Uh, this is a reprint of it that was done in 2006, probably the first reprint of the Geneva Bible in hundreds of years. So before we turn to the text, I want to talk about the, the Bible that we're going to, I'm going to be using this morning. Geneva Bible, published in 1599, was the Bible that the pilgrims brought to America. This is the Bible that they had in their homes and that they used. And it was the Bible that was read and studied in every pilgrim and Puritan home and in every congregation. And the importance of this Bible cannot be overstated. It was originally published in 1560, predating the King James Version by over 50 years. And it was dedicated to Queen Elizabeth at that time. Queen Elizabeth had succeeded her half-sister, Bloody Mary, to the throne. And while many of the Protestant Christians were in exile in Geneva, Switzerland, escaping the persecution of Bloody Mary, several prominent Protestant scholars translated the Bible into the English language. And there are several things so important, I even put them in your outline this morning, several things about this Bible that make it one of the most important Bibles in history. First of all, it was the first Bible to be fully translated, Old Testament and New Testament, from the original languages from the Greek and the Hebrew. It was translated solely from the Greek and Hebrew text instead of relying on the Latin Vulgate and other translations. And secondly, it was the first Bible to qualify as a study Bible, something that we take for granted today. It was the first Bible that had copious notes, cross-references, maps, annotations, and commentary about the Greek and Hebrew text. It contains tens of thousands of notes probably almost as many as the MacArthur Study Bible, if you've ever seen, seen one of those. And you know John MacArthur, the number of notes that he puts in. It wasn't until the Schofield Reference Bible, 300 years later, that a study Bible of the same quality and the same magnitude was published. So the Geneva Bible became the foundation of what we call group Bible study. A stu- a pr- it, group Bible study was brand new at the time. And so it was the catalyst of the acceptance of the liberating doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. What does that mean? That as a believer in Jesus Christ, we don't have to go through a priest to understand God's truth. We don't have to go through a priest to approach God. We can go to the word of God itself. We can go to the Bible. We can go to Jesus Christ. We can go to God ourselves. And so group Bible study started happening all over England at a time that it was illegal to hold a group Bible study. And many laymen and preachers were imprisoned and executed for expounding the word of God outside of the state church. Thirdly, the Geneva Bible is the first Bible to assign chapter and verse numbers. Until this Bible, everything just ran together. And so they took the chapters and verses that was developed by another person in the the Middle Ages. But for the first time in history, you could say, please turn to chapter 11 of Hebrews, you find 11 written right there, and verse 6, and and read it that way, or please turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And also, it was the first Bible printed in a size and format that made it suitable for use within the home. Up until this Bible, they were portfolio kind of things, and you know, about that thick and about that big, and you turn the pages with all kinds of problems and those kind of things. It was the first, in fact, the original one was just about this size. It was just about this size. And it was printed in a type of print that was easily read. 
And it was also printed in a format, mostly the New Testament, that they called the Soldier's Bible. And it was the Bible the soldiers carried into the English Civil War and sustained them. The Geneva Bible is the Bible of William Shakespeare. It was the Bible of John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost. It was the Bible of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It was the Bible of John Knox, the great Scottish reformer who served on the translation committee. And incidentally, the Geneva Bible was the first Bible translated by a committee, not a single individual. It was the Bible of the Puritans, who are considered in history to be the greatest expositors. It was the Bible that John Rolfe used in the conversion of Pocahontas in Jamestown in 1611. And it was the Bible of the pilgrims who sailed to America. So if you want to turn in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The 11th chapter of Hebrews, the first verse in the big Bibles, it's page 1678 in the smaller Bibles, uh, page 1458. And I'll be reading along in the Geneva Bible. You can follow along and see, see how it reads compared to your Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now faith is the grounds of things which are hoped for and the evidence of things which are not seen. For by it our elders were well reported of. I thought that was interesting. The end of that sentence with a preposition. We're not supposed to do that today. For the, our elders were well reported of. Through faith we understand that the world was ordained by the word of God. So that the things which we see are not made of things which did appear. Now, go down to verse 6. After talking about the faith of Abel and Enoch, in verse 6 it says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that God is, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him. Now go down to verse 13. After mentioning the faith of Noah and Abraham and Sarah, it says in verse 13, All these died in faith and received not the promises, but saw them afar off and believed them and received them thankfully and confessed that we or that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, they had leisure to have returned, but now they desire a better, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, and he hath prepared for them a city. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you for your word that is given to us. We thank you for those who have sacrificed and dedicated their lives to translate it into a language that we can study, we can understand. Father, I pray that we would never take this for granted, that we can have a Bible in our hands, we can have a Bible in our own language, we can have a Bible that uh, is translated in a way that uh, is faithful to your word and yet uh, speaks to our generation that, that we can understand. Father, we thank you for your word, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to answer a couple of questions about the pilgrims themselves before we talk about their story of faith and what we learned from it. And the first question is, why are they called pilgrims? Why do we call them pilgrims? 
Now, to many today, think of them as pilgrims because they journeyed across the ocean to a dangerous and foreboding land in search of a promised land, as it were. But the pilgrims themselves who came to this land did not consider their pilgrimage to have ended when they reached these shores and found what they were looking for. They called themselves pilgrims because of what we just read in Hebrews chapter 11. According to Governor Bradford of the Plymouth Colony, yes, they were searching for an earthly location where they could perpetuate, as he said, proper worship and and earn a better living. But to the degree that the pilgrims thought of themselves as pilgrims, they meant that they were temporary travelers in a world that was not their home. Even America would not be their true home. They would fully agree with the song that we sing today, this world is not my home, but I'm just a passing through. And in his writing, Governor Bradford, who had become Governor Bradford, described the pilgrims' departure from Holland when they left Holland as the members of the Leiden congregation that they were part of and they were getting ready to leave for America. They were saying goodbye to friends and and loved ones remaining behind and Bradford himself was leaving his three-year-old son behind who wouldn't be able to join the colony till later. And Bradford wrote of this departure to America from Leiden. He said, with an abundance of tears, you can imagine, with abundance of tears, the group left that goodly and pleasant city, referring to Leiden, Holland, which had been their resting place near 12 years. But they knew they were pilgrims and looked not so much on those things, but they lifted up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. As he pens those words, Bradford is almost certainly thinking in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, that great survey of Old Testament heroes of faith. And there in the text of the 1599 edition of the Geneva Bible that Bradford brought with him to Plymouth, we read that these men and women of faith, quote, confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain that any that say such things, that is, think of themselves as pilgrims and, and, uh, and strangers, declare plainly that they seek a country, but the country they seek, he said, is a heavenly one. Another one of the pilgrims, a deacon by the name of Robert Cushman, emphasized in his writing that God no longer gave particular lands to any people, as he once had given Canaan to the nation of Israel. Cushman observed, But now we are all in all places strangers and pilgrims, travelers and sojourners, having no dwelling but in this earthly tabernacle. With 2 Corinthians 5.1 in mind, he elaborated, Our dwelling is but a wandering, and our abiding but a fleeting, and our word, our home is nowhere but in the heavens, that house not made with hands whose maker and builder is God, into which all ascend the love, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can remember the pilgrims who left Leiden Holland as our spiritual ancestors of faith and still preserve their understanding of pilgrimage and what our understanding should be as well, recognizing that, yes, we dwell in a land that we call America, and we love that land and this land, and, and we pray for it, but our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And the second question is this, why are they called Puritans? We know why they're called pilgrims. Why Puritans? And to answer that again, we go back in history to the translation of the Bible in English. 
Up until 1537, it was illegal in England to translate the Bible into English. The Bible is only legal then if it was authorized by the king of England, Henry VIII, who had declared himself head of the church so he could divorce a wife. And then the rest of the, and divorce a wife and kill a wife and kill a wife and divorce a wife. What, what a reason to declare yourself head of the church. And the Bible used by the church in England was in Latin. and was typically the case. The common people couldn't read it. And most of the clergy were illiterate as well. And the first English translation that made an enduring impact was that of William Tyndale. And in order to publish his translation, he had to flee to Germany, where the New Testament was printed and was smuggled back in to England. And Tyndale's driving passion was to get the word of God into the hands of ordinary people. In fact, he told a friar at one time that the boy behind the plow is going to know more of the word of God than you do. He wanted them people to be able to study, to understand, and apply the truths of God's words for themselves. And this is what sparked the revival fires of the Reformation in Europe. For the first time... In centuries, people could read the word of God for themselves. Yet Tyndale was eventually hunted down by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was strangled first, and then he was burned at the stake. Now, just two years after Tyndale's death, King Henry VIII authorized an official translation of the Bible in English that was called the Great Bible. And the primary motivating factor for finally giving in, for finally authorizing a translation into English, was the king's hatred for William Tyndale in his banned translation. And little did Henry know that the great Bible, which he authorized, was at least 90% of Tyndale's translation, what he hated. God works in strange and mysterious, mysterious ways. But the word of God was now in the hands of the people. And as they studied it and read it and applied its truths, they discovered more and more that the Church of England, with the king at its head, was evil and it was corrupt. This gave rise to those who are called the Puritans. Now, at first, the Puritans wanted the Church of England to be purified from within. The Church of England had come under the rule of the king, but there was yet no reformation in the church. In England, it was essentially the Roman Catholic Church with an English label and had a king instead of a pope. But King Henry's 13 articles of faith were identical to the basic tenets of the faith of the Roman Catholic Church. And so the Puritans, in their refusal to see the king or the queen, for that matter, as head of the church, also refused the authorized Bible translations of the monarchy. Instead, they used the Geneva Bible. And that raised the ire of the monarchy and the Church of England. And from their study of God's word, the, the Puritans advocated a, a greater purity of, in worship and doctrine. But for decades, the Puritans really had limited success. And that led to those who were called separatists, the separatists and whom the Church of England called dissenters, dissenters. The separatists rightly understood that the Church of England would not be purified from within. They saw it as too far gone. So they started meeting amongst themselves, worshiping, studying God's word. They preached the gospel in the streets and in their homes, 
And in some Anglican churches, that is Church of England churches, when they had the opportunity, and the king in the Church of England would have none of this. No way. And so the English Parliament passed a series of acts which excluded the separatists and other dissenters from holding public office, forbade them from preaching without a license. You had to be licensed by the government in order to preach. But despite this kind of persecution, the early dissenters continued in the faith. In the years that followed, as many as 3,000 dissenters died in jail under King James I and his son, Charles I. It was a horrible, horrible time of persecution. Now, during this time, there was a small group of Puritan separatists in Gainsborough, Lincolnshire, England, and they met in a house that was called the Scrooby Mansion. I just love that word, Scrooby Mansion. How can you forget that? They let, that's where they met for their Bible study and the teaching and their prayer and, and gathering together. And at the time, they faced the penalties under the 1559 Act of Uniformity. It was illegal not to attend official Church of England services. Everybody in the kingdom was required to go to church and go to the Church of England, go to official government-sanctioned uh, worship service, and it carried a fine of one shilling for each missed Sunday and each missed Holy Day. And the penalties for conducting unofficial services included imprisonment and larger fines. And of all things, under the policy at this time, two of the leaders at Scrooby were executed in 1593 for preaching the gospel, for holding home Bible studies, as we would call them. Can you even imagine dying for your faith for that? Still, the group continued to meet under the leadership of Pastor John Robinson, along with the leadership of William Brewster, who owned Scrooby Mansion, and William Bradford, who would become the governor of the Plymouth Colony in the New World. And incidentally, under John, there was John Smith and, and Thomas Ellis at that time, but they stayed in England and formed a Baptist church. So our roots in Baptists in the English tradition go right back to Scrooby Mansion again. And after some amazing struggles and, and enduring severe persecution in England, the group that met at Scrooby Manor migrated to the Netherlands to Holland. And that brings us to the story of Thanksgiving. Now the Puritan separatists found themselves and their families in Amsterdam and in Leiden. And having come from an agricultural background and now in their city, in a city that's based primarily on the fishing trades, they really had a tough go at it for several years. They really had to work hard, but as Bradford wrote, at length they came to raise a competent and comfortable living through only by dint of hard and continual labor. There's the Puritan ethic, hard, continual labor. That's how you make a go in life. And so Bradford continued, so they grew in knowledge and other gifts and graces of the Spirit of God and lived together in peace and love and holiness. And so in Holland, they were growing and they were able to worship as, as, as scripture dictated. Sometimes we hear that they came to America to worship as they wanted to or as their conscience dictated. No, they wanted to worship as the word of God told them to worship. So they had that in the Netherlands. So why leave these lower lands? 
especially to go to a hostile new land that was so full of risk. And they were well respected by their neighbors. They were successful in their trades and businesses by this time. And, and we've heard that it's for religious freedom. But they had that in Holland. It's a much deeper issue. Now, Governor Bradford wrote that there were several reasons for leaving the lower lands, as he called them, of Holland. First of all, he said, many of the brethren were still under the hand of persecution in England, preferring prisons in England to liberty in Holland. Preferring prison in England to liberty in Holland. Why would they prefer that? Well, we're going to see that in just a moment in one of these other reasons. Secondly, Many of the brethren, he says, were getting older. If something was to be done, now is the time of God's providence, he said. And here's the main reason. Bradford wrote, it was for the dearest children. It was for the dearest children. The main reason the pilgrims came to America was for their kids. For their kids. You see, in Holland, where there was complete religious freedom and tolerance, there was also every heresy in the world. Holland was a haven for heretics. Their kids were being drawn into what we call today the cults. The cults were taking away their kids. They also found that there was great licentiousness among the young people in the country, as there still is today in, in Holland. And Bradford, it was what Bradford called temptations, evil examples, and dangerous courses. Temptations, evil examples, and dangerous courses. The, their children were becoming rebellious like the young people around them. And Bradford wrote, they saw their posterity would be in danger to degenerate and become corrupt. They were losing their children to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that was long before they had the internet. They were losing their kids. What would you do? And a fourth reason, Bradford said, was for the laying of the foundation for the propagation advance of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in the remotest parts of the world. They were motivated by the Great Commission. Two reasons for the dangerous trek in life were practical, two were theological. Practically, some of the brethren preferred prison in Holland to losing their, or prison in England to losing their kids in Holland. They were also getting older, as were their children. Now is the time to go. Theologically, they wanted to raise a generation that was loyal to God, according to Psalm 78, and they wanted to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. They really didn't see it as a religious freedom issue at all at this point. And then after several months of hard work and negotiating with the economic power brokers in England for, for financing, even in those days you had to borrow money to do these kinds of things, several of the Puritan separatists left in two ships from, in hopes of joining with the Virginia colony in the safety, you know, if they'd be in safety in the new land with the Virginia colony. And one of the ships called the Speedwell was overmasted. Had too many masts, they put a, yeah, whatever, I can't think of the thing. I guess the, the main vertical is called the mast, and, and too many sails, and so it was taking on water, so it had to return. And, and that was with much great disappointment with those that were on board, and the captain and the crew of the Speedwell were hired for a year, and what really happened is they probably chickened out, and they made up a reason why the ship wasn't going to make it. So the Mayflower went on alone, unheard of at that time for a ship to go alone, 
a little over 100 pilgrims plus the crew on board. And it was storms and seasickness the whole way. Maybe you can picture that, that they were housed in what's called the tween deck. There was the main hole below them, and then there was another, and then the, the final deck. Uh, the headroom between the beams was probably about five feet in this tween deck. It had no windows because water was splashing up against it, and it was probably below the, the water line to, to boot. You'd have your animals in there, you'd have your chickens, you'd have your cows, you'd have people with seasickness. And this went on for, for, several, for several weeks. Their goal was to join with the safety of the Virginia colony for the winter and then form their own colony a little ways from them in the spring. But they were blown way off course. But you know, they still believed they were in God's will. Don't ever think that there's no storms <laughs> in the will of God. Because God's appointments can show up as great disappointments to us. God had a different idea. Finally, they came to, upon land at Cape Cod. The problem, it was dead of winter. They were far, far north of the safety of the Virginia colony. They tried to sail south, but the roaring waves and the wind and the dangerous shoals prevented them. They didn't know what they were up against, but now we call it a nor'easter. And we see this time of year, every year, what happens with the nor'easters in the east. And if you ever saw that movie, The Perfect Storm, you get two or three things happening all at the same time. Winter, no provisions. They're in a hostile land, literally. As they put it, the mighty ocean behind them, the wilderness full of wild beasts and wild men in front of them. Now, one of the problems was that the Indians north of Virginia if they saw a white man, they would shoot. They would shoot first. And they had good reason for shooting at white men. All the Indians knew of the white man up to this time was that he would come and steal their children. They would raid the, the villages and they would take the children for slavery in the southern colonies and in the Bahamas. You see a white man? He's going to steal your kids. But here's God's providence. The pilgrims had landed at the only spot, the only spot north of Virginia, where they would not have been immediately killed by the Indians. You see, a plague just the year before had killed all the Indians in the immediate area. The village had been raided by white men a couple of years before. The women were raped, the children kidnapped, the rest died of plague. And of all things, as they explored that land, the pilgrims found empty villages with corn already stockpiled for the next year's planting. They were well aware, even in this horrible situation, of the providence of God. And Governor Bradford wrote, Our fathers were Englishmen who came over the great ocean, were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord. He heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord because he is good and his mercies endure forever. But there was still a hard, hard winter before them. And at one time, only Miles Standish and two others were strong enough to minister to the rest of the sick in their cabins. A day's ration was four kernels of corn, knowing that if there was more, there'd be no planting in the spring. 
In a month's time, half of them died. And half of them were children. But they came for the sake of their dear children. And now their children lay in frozen graves. And out of the forest one day came an Indian who spoke English. And they were shocked when they heard him say, Welcome, Englishman. And then the second thing he said is, Do you have any beer? <laughs> His name was Samoset. They graciously accommodated on them. Yes, the pilgrims drank beer, much the same way that they drank wine in Jesus' day because of the alcohol. Sometimes you didn't know what the water supply was going to be like, so they drank beer. But they accommodated Samoset, and he told them about another Indian who spoke English. His name was Squanto. And where did Squanto come from? As a boy, Squanto had been captured by slavers and taken to England. And eventually he was freed, and when he came back to his own land, the land which now the pilgrims inhabited, he found that his own people had died of plague. He's an English-speaking Indian, alone in his own land. His people had all perished. Squanto taught the pilgrims how to plant corn, of which they knew only beans, literally. They'd never seen corn before. He taught them how to plant the corn. He taught them where to take fish and other commodities and guided them to unknown places and, and how to use fish for fertilizing the good earth. And Governor Bradford called Squanto a special instrument sent of God for their good. So what about the first Thanksgiving, the very first one? The pilgrim writers barely mention it. Somebody has said from Winslow's writings, we get 150 words about the first Thanksgiving. And Bradford doesn't mention the first Thanksgiving at all in his 300-plus page journal of the Plymouth Colony. But in the autumn of 1621, that first fall, Bradford declared a three-day festival to praise God and asked for his blessing in their outgoings and incomings, he called it. And inviting the Indians in which they'd befriended by the summer, through the summer, was, was really just almost an afterthought and would have driven them back to poverty had not the 90 Indians that showed up brought their own five deer to the feast. And that first Thanksgiving was nothing like we see in the paintings today. There, there were no long tables spread with white tablecloths and, and all the cornucopia and stuff on, on the tables. They would have gathered around campfires for three days. They would have played games. They would have celebrated. And a little-known fact is that 14 of the 18 wives, 14 out of 18 wives died that first winter. There were only four married couples at the first Thanksgiving. Yet they held a three-day festival and praised God for their deliverance. And they asked for his blessing upon them. But I want to take you in closing to a, a Thanksgiving that they celebrated two years later, almost two years later, in the summer of 1623. Because the pilgrims considered this Thanksgiving of 1623 to be a holy day, as we talked about it. A day set aside, set apart. That's what holy means, to set, be set apart. A day set aside for a particular purpose. From the pilgrims' perspective, their first formal celebration of a day of thanksgiving in Plymouth came nearly two years later in July 1623. You see, the pilgrims' struggle for survival continued at least another two years. 
after they arrived and after that first Thanksgiving. And this was partly due to the criminal mismanagement of the London financiers who bankrolled the colony because they were supposed to send provisions and all kinds of stuff and pots and pans and all those basic necessities, and they never did. All they wanted was for the pilgrims to send them all these furs and other good stuff they got from, from America, from the new land. To pay off their financiers, first the pilgrims loaded a ship and they sent it off. It was taken by pirates. At least the financiers claimed it never arrived. They loaded up another ship, set it off. It was taken by pirates. What kind of faith would it take to send the third ship? Yet, they did. But only weeks after their 1621 harvest celebration, the pilgrims were surprised by the arrival of a ship called Fortune. The 35 new settlers on board, all men, would nearly double their depleted ranks. Now that sounds, that's really good. Unfortunately, they arrived with few clothes, there was no bedding, there was no pots or pans, there was no food, no provisions, and William Bradford bitterly recalled, not so much as biscuit cake or any other victuals. Not a thing. The result was, rather than what they were going to have, good plenty for the winter, the pilgrims who had to provide food for the fortune's return voyage, they put food on ships so it could go back, but now they had another 35 mouths to feed throughout the winter, and once again they faced the prospect of starvation. Now even by cutting the rations in half for the winter, by May they were almost completely out of food. And there was passing fishing boats, and there was the harvest of 1622, but that only provided a temporary reprieve from hunger but it fell far short of their needs for the coming winter, for the coming year. And by the spring of 1623, the pilgrim situation was again dire. As Bradford remember, this trial is typical for colonists to go to bed at night not knowing where the next day's nourishment would come from. For two to three months, they wrote, they had no bread or beer at all. Because beer, beer is made from what? Barley or, or something like that. And so they, they had nothing that grew out of the, out of the ground. And, and God said, and they said, God fed them almost wholly out of the sea. The problem is that like the fowl that were plentiful at certain times of year, they would leave. in the fishing, whatever they call it, where they would fish, you know, it was seasonal as well. And adding to their plight, they said, the heavens closed up. The heavens closed up around the third week in May. And for nearly two months, it rained hardly at all. The ground became parched. The corn began to wither. And hopes for their future began dying. And yet there was still another ship of new arrivals who had nothing that they brought with them except the clothes on their back. And this, these new arrivals were shocked at the condition of the Plymouth colonists. They said many were ragged in apparel and some little better than half naked. The pilgrims, for their part, could offer the newcomers nothing more than a little piece of dried fish and a cup of water. That's all they had. So what's the community going to do? What are they going to do? 
The community agreed together to set apart, set apart, that may, that's what holy means, to set apart a solemn day of humiliation, to seek the Lord by humble and fervent prayer in this great distress. And as Pilgrim Edward Winslow explained, their hope was that God, quote, would be moved hereby in mercy to look down upon us and grant the request of our dejected souls. But oh, the mercy of God, Wenzel exalted, who is ready to hear as we ask. And so the columnists set this day of, you know, they called it humiliation because the Puritans believed that if God was not visiting his blessing upon them, that there was something that they were doing wrong, that they needed to confess. They needed to go before God and say, God, we need to, in humility, humiliation, seek your face. And so they set aside this day. And the columnists awoke on that appointed day of humiliation and fervent prayer to a cloudless sky. By the end of the prayer service, which lasted eight to nine hours, kids, think about that one, eight to nine hours, it had become overcast. And by morning, it had begun to rain. And the rain would continue for 14 days. Bradford marveled at what he called the sweet and gentle showers, which did so apparently revive and quicken the decayed corn. Winslow added, it was hard to say whether our withered corn or drooping affections were most quickened or revived. Overwhelmed by God's gracious intervention, the pilgrims immediately called for another providential holy day or holiday. And that's the way Winslow explained it. He said, we thought it would be great ingratitude if we should content ourselves with private thanksgiving for that which by private prayer could not be obtained. Doesn't that make sense? If private prayer is not what brings God's blessing, then private praise is not, not appropriate. And therefore, we set aside another solemn day. It was set apart and appointed for that end, wherein we return glory, honor, and praise with all thanksgiving, all thankfulness to our God. Now, this occasion likely held at the end or at the end of July 1623 perfectly matches the pilgrim's definition of a Thanksgiving holy day, holiday, a day set apart. It was a solemn observance, as Winslow noted, called to acknowledge a very specific, extraordinary blessing from the Lord. In some, it was what the pilgrims themselves would have viewed as the first Thanksgiving in America, but in America, it's all pretty much been forgotten, hasn't it? I'm going to finish by reading from the Geneva Bible, Romans 15, verses 4 through, 4 through 6. With keeping this in mind, at our end gathering today, we want to give you all the opportunity to express your thanksgiving to God, what he's done in, in your life, in the life of our church, to make public, as it were, that which God has, has blessed us with. But I want you to hear these words again from Romans 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through perseverance and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation give you that ye be like-minded towards one another, according to Jesus Christ, that ye with one mind and with one mouth may praise God 
even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we are here today to give you thanks for that which you have blessed us with. And Father, I thank you from the example of the pilgrims and uh, their struggles, their trials, the horrible things that they went through, Father, that you proved yourself faithful. You heard their prayers. You answered their prayers. And Father, they committed their lives to you and to one another. Father, I thank you for this. And I pray today as we continue our, our celebration of, of in-gathering and expressing praise and thanks to you, Father, that you would hear our prayers, that we might rejoice because we are pure in heart through the love and the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.